Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 32. Today, I wanted to rant on something that we touch on in the interview. It's an idea that this show was built on, and surprisingly enough, it hasn't had its moment in the spotlight yet. Let's start with me asking you a question. What is success to you? I'll give you a second to think about it. Okay, so there's probably two categories of answer here. There's one that is very big, bold, and lofty, but still doesn't feel vague because it has some specific language in it. Now, the second type of answer is going to fall into a category that is much more specific and may potentially seem less ambitious, but it's very clear and very well-defined. So which one are you in? I spent a good part of my career with big, lofty, and idealistic definitions of success. Stuff like, I want to be a huge mixer, or I want to mix a number one song. And this definition served me for a while. It kept me in the music business and always encouraged by my, quote, progress. And of course, I was always making progress because I had a wide open definition of success that was easy to funnel everything into. Everything became progress. Was this a bad thing? Well, not necessarily. It kept me going and I was making a living working in music. It was big and lofty. I was shooting for the stars. So that's all good, right? But here's the problem. And maybe I speak mostly for myself, but I don't think so. I think a lot of people probably do this. First, you decide what your career path is. Then you find somebody at the top, probably an idol of yours, and you say, I want to be the next insert name here. I definitely did this. I wanted to be the next Andy Wallace or the next Chris Lord Algae, but that's not defining success for yourself. And on top of that, you don't even know how that person defines their own success. How could you ever aspire to follow in their footsteps without even knowing how they decide to walk? Here's another version of that. Maybe one of your peers has risen to success. You see their band opening for big acts and getting some radio spins or something. So you decide that success for your band is where they are. And it feels more attainable and clear because you aren't comparing yourself to a superstar. But once again, you aren't defining success. You are plucking somebody else's version of it and making it yours. This is where I'm going to get bold and say that this first category of answers is actually not definitions of success but instead lofty goals that have been misinterpreted as what success is to you. Think about it. Mix a number one song. That's a goal. Tour with a major label band. A goal. Get some radio play. Goal. These are all goals. Big goals. And yes, you want to think big and you want to push yourself when you're setting your goals. But setting your goals is different from defining success. They work together, but they are not always one and the same. The important part about defining success is clarity. Now, let's flip over to the other category that I mentioned. This is the category that is more well-defined. Maybe less glorious, but definitely no less noble. These are going to be things like, 
support my family while working in music, or have royalty streams that will support me in retirement so that I can travel, or have a balanced schedule that allows me to follow my passion. Sure, these sound like goals as well, but the difference is that these are more like pillars that you can support your goals and decisions off of. Example, to retire and travel the world while being supported by your royalties is something that you can clearly build very specific goals off of. You can easily list out things that will work towards that and things that won't. Like having a number one song is for sure a lofty goal that will be tied to retiring and living off your royalties. Something else you'll find is that these versions of success tend to revolve around things that bring you happiness and fulfillment that are not necessarily related to specific goal outcomes, milestones, or awards. These are about seeing the big picture. Once again, making these not goals, but core values that help guide your choices. Now, the key here is that you define your own version of success. It might not always be the most unique, but it's important that you come to the conclusion of what it is on your own and not by looking around you. Maybe what makes you truly successful in your mind isn't even about your own career. Maybe you want financial freedom so you can do charity work. Or maybe you want to gain enough experience to mentor or teach people. And you know what? You can have a version of success like this and still have a goal to have a number one song. You being successful doesn't have to be determined by whether or not you achieve your most far-reaching goals. And let me tell you from experience, success will change. You'll redefine what success is numerous times in your career. One day, it might even take you out of music. And that's not a bad thing. That doesn't make you a quitter because you are on your path to success. You have defined where your journey will take you. But if you're letting someone else's success define what yours is, then you probably will think something like a job change or a career shift is a level of failure because you aren't walking your own path. If you clearly define what makes you successful to yourself, then you will never battle with the pains of comparing yourself to those around you and you'll live a more fulfilling life. So now with all that food for thought, what is success to you? I challenge you to go out and define success in a way that it can act as a pillar for all your goal setting and decision making, not just for your career, but for your whole life. Our guest today is composer, producer, and co-founder of CineSamples, Mike Patty. Mike started CineSamples in 2007 when he saw an opportunity to create niche libraries to fill holes in the marketplace. Since then, they have grown it to become one of the go-to orchestral library developers for composers around the globe. And as a composer, Mike works regularly on projects for Disney parks, bringing music to many of their attractions, and has also composed music for several video games, most notably StarCraft II and League of Legends, the latter of which he was awarded an MPSE Golden Reel Award for original music. So welcome to the show, Mike Patty. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, Travis. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This is my first, uh, first podcast. Oh, We'll nice. see how we do. <laughs> this is like my 20th, so I'm not really that far ahead of you, so... Um, how, how are things? We haven't seen each other in a while. I know we, we chatted the other day for a minute. Well, things are pretty good. I mean, despite uh, the world being upside down, you know, the Patty family is doing all right. It's good. We're doing okay. We've got our little, uh, we're homeschooling and, you know, I'm running a business and trying to stay busy. Yes, it's, uh, it's been like uh, quite an adjustment period for, for everybody. So you have so many things going on. So you, you got to, you have to be busy. You have good balance, I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, balance is, maybe that's something we can talk about, right? Uh, <laughs> balance is, is the, uh, is the ever elusive goal, I guess. I don't think you ever quite achieve it. We, obviously I have a family and we're trying to balance, 
you know, I'm a CEO now. I can't believe I'm saying CEO. I don't know if I like that term, but that's what I am now uh, of Cine Samples. And uh, we have a growing team there. We have over a dozen employees. And then I also have a, a composing business that I run. So it's a matter of figuring out, okay, how do I do all of these things and not just be completely horrible at all of them, you know, <laughs> but really try to focus and try to be good at least some, two of them, you know? Totally. I, I think... Um... I think everybody believes that that they will never have balance, and it's it's people on the outside that are like, "Oh, look that that guy or girls, they have all their stuff sorted. Look at them." And then meanwhile, that person's like, "There's no, I'm, it's not enough time in the day. There's too many things." But um, I wanted to just start a little bit with your musical background. I know you're you're an amazing piano player. Is that what brought you into your composition and your um, and your scoring interest? Yeah, sure. Well, without making this too boring for people listening, um, yeah, I started off as a piano player. I've always wanted to learn the piano, you know, when I was 12 years old. And I grew up in Long Island, New York. So there's a big like musical theater scene there. I've always wanted to play, uh, you know, just get a job playing uh, piano for these shows. And I did a lot of that growing up in my teenage years. And But the biggest thing that kind of like changed my life was when I saw Jurassic Park in 1992 that came out and everyone was excited about the, the dinosaurs and how amazing they looked and everything. But I stayed after, you know, with my parents during the credits, they, everyone just left the theater. And I was like, I had to listen to this score, this amazing orchestral score that was playing through the speakers. I didn't know anything about orchestra or how that worked, but there was something about that that was like, what the heck is this? So there's a, and I learned like, there's a person who his job is to write this music to affect people's emotions, millions of people's emotions in the way that I was affected. I have to figure this out. Whatever this is, I want to be involved in that. I don't care how I'm involved. I want to just investigate this whole thing. So yeah, that kind of started the whole journey of learning about classical music and orchestration and all of that good stuff. I went to Hofstra University. I got a great music education there where I'm Actually met my wife there and uh, then moved out to California, to the West Coast, to go to USC where they have this uh, film scoring program. Did that for a year. That was 2002. And um, yeah, that was kind of my educational upbringing. And then I, you know, assisted lots of composers, you know, through your 20s. You don't really, you feel like you know what you're doing, but you don't. (laughs) I (laughs) assisted a lot of composers. (laughs) I was doing all sorts of things like getting coffee for people, you know, um, fixing their broken PCs, uh, installing Giga Studio. Um, I worked over at uh, uh, Hans Zimmer Studio for a short stint and then uh, worked for a composer uh, by the name of Kevin Manthe, who kind of gave me one of my first jobs and uh, doing Saturday morning cartoon shows and, and video games, stuff like that. And he actually gave me some opportunity to actually compose which was really cool. I just couldn't believe that that someone was going to pay me to write music. It was super awesome. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, that first sort of five to 10 years right out of school was kind of like an apprenticeship, uh, just working for Kevin and, and a few other composers as well. Uh, just learning about this business because it's like writing music for media is like 90% has not, 90% of it has nothing to do with music. You, you have to all this admin stuff and, and just, oh, we can talk about that, but <laughs> there's so much more to running a business than there is uh, composing. Making music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, I've talked to a few people and I have a few other friends that have, you know, gone down the composition route. And I feel like the, uh, 
the main task of a lot of these composer assistants, you know, when you're coming up is like you become like the computer tech. Like you have to fix all the libraries and organize all the drives and print all the stems. Is that where you started to get interested in creating your own libraries or were you working with libraries that these composers had made? Yeah, so I I was doing a lot of tech work. Yeah, I would show up at studios <laughs> and apparently I became known as the guy who could fix your computer. <laughs> and this was like the early 2000s when like sampling was fairly new. I mean, well, sampling's been around since the 80s, uh, but it really became more popular like around 2004, 2005 when Giga Studio came on the scene and everyone had these computers. You had like, you know, some of the some of these high-level composers had like 16 PCs all running Giga Studio, you know, and they would have one PC just for short strings, one PC just for long strings, you know, a PC just for short brass, long brass, like four of them just for percussion. It, you know, that's amazing. Anyway, so I did a lot of that kind of tech work for people, but uh, I also uh, would do a lot of mock-ups. So some some older composers who are more interested in pencil and paper would send me their sketches. And it would be my job to look at the sketch and then make a, make a mock-up using virtual instruments. And there weren't a lot of people doing that, you know, in like 2005, 2006. Uh, so I was very fortunate. I got to do a lot of work doing mock-ups. And sometimes they'd be like, hey, just finish this cue for me. I'm like, okay, you know. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of that. And then I realized there were a lot of gaps in the market for certain instruments and so my uh, business partner and I decided to go and, and record uh, some instruments. Uh, we started with a harp library at a studio in Manhattan. And we chopped it up, created a, a Giga Studio version of it, put it up on a website and said, hey, here's a cool harp library that we made. And uh, to our surprise, people were buying it. It was like, wow, okay, maybe there's something here. That's cool. We took all the, the profits from that and made another library, made another library. And then it's like, oh, I guess we have like a company now. Uh, <laughs> That's, did it feel like an organic growth? Like composers were finding this library and telling their other buddies about it? Or did you guys do some early marketing? Like how did you get that initial thing rolling? Well, first of all, I was using the library for myself, for my clients. Um, and then we put, I decided to make a website and we put it up on uh vicontrol.net. This was like 2007. Facebook was kind of brand new. People weren't really on it. Right. And uh, that's where we, vicontrol.net. I don't know if anyone knows that website. That's where all the composers hang out and complain about sample library companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that we put it there and that's kind of where our business took off. It, it, it was always a side gig for a while. That wasn't making the income for the Patty family. You know, it was... Uh, <laughs> Just this fun thing that I was like, oh, okay, let me. I'm doing this work for composers, but I have these instruments that we're making on the side. Let's just see if we can, you know, make a few extra bucks here on the side. But it kind of snowballed because it was we were one of the first to do like digital downloads. Um, before us, you would buy a sample pack of of instruments on a CD or CD-ROM and have it shipped to you and everything. And we just said, let's not do that. Let's just make it really easy. Click a button and have it accessible to you immediately. When you were first doing that, since you, you had the idea of going download, um, how did that affect your early library sizes? Did you still make them as large as you felt you needed to make them, or were you able to find a way to kind of you know split the difference? Yeah, no, it was a problem. Um, yeah, around 2009, we made a choir library, which is a huge, 
I think it was like 20, at the time it was very large. It was like 20 gigabytes. So we had to create a downloader. We had to come up with a way to, not everyone had fast internet connections too. So we just figured it out. We'd go on a case by case. If people had trouble downloading, we would put it on a USB stick and just mail it to them, you know, <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, it worked out. Down to get the uh, the client whatever they need. Yeah. Can't download it? All right, give me your address. It's coming your way. Exactly. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I was going to ask you, as CineSamples was growing, was there ever a time that you took any uh, took any classes or read any books? Like, did you ever feel like your music education wasn't going to suffice, like running a business? Did you ever try taking any business classes or do anything like that? I've taken no business classes. Um <laughs> I've just figured it out as I've gone along. Uh, you know, I, I think the best education has been just being around really smart people who have accomplished what you want to accomplish, you know? Right. People that you really value and trust, you just call them up and ask them for advice or work for them. And that's what I did a lot of just early on. Uh, I mean, my first job right out of USC, I was, I was helping a composer and, uh, and I was just like, oh, how do I get paid? How does this even work? You know, he said, yeah, well, you have to send me an invoice, you know, and write your number of hours on it. Let me know how much I owe you. It's like, what's an invoice? You know, like <laughs> I've never done this before. So very basic stuff I knew nothing about, I, uh, but I knew how to orchestrate for the strings. You know, I, I could do all that stuff. <laughs> Having a music education is incredibly important because that's something you will always rely on. It's like your bag of tricks that you can always pick from. You know, because you know, when you get that big gig and you're onto the deadline and they need that thing by 3 p.m., you know, you're going to rely on that sort of breadth of knowledge that you have, hopefully. And just yeah, that, crank, crank the thing out. Well, speaking of uh, music education and, you know, understanding music and playing piano, uh, one of the things that's always impressed me, I'm not a great piano player. I should let everybody know that. I'm awful. What's impressed me about some of your instruments, like the some of the string libraries, is the kind of the playability factor uh, using like velocity. Did you spend a lot of time trying to uh, just find the best way for you to be able to get an idea out with your musical, you know, background, and then thinking about how that would translate over to uh, the end user? Yeah, I think. Well, initially with our libraries, the first few selfishly were just kind of. Uh, for me, in a way, uh, and and laid out in a way that I liked, because I'm a keyboard player, and I like to write really, really fast. I want to get the stuff done quick. I don't really want to tweak instruments. I want to be able to play it, move a mod wheel, maybe, in the volume, and that's it, and just have it sound great. Uh, so that's kind of been the guiding principle behind everything. I really try to, we really try to avoid, you know, complex interfaces. I think we have definitely gone down that rabbit hole a little bit lately because it's tough because these are commercial libraries and we do have to listen to what customers want. So if they want something specific, we do have to provide it. I can't just be so, no, this is what I like. So you should <laughs> like it too. So we kind of grew into like, fundamentally, it has to work for someone who's just going to play it in and just work. But there's a lot of people that compose differently. They'll click it in um, with their mouse or they'll just, they'll use a notation program or something like that. So... There was a, a guest recently that I was talking to that uh, said, you know, you have to remember the difference between pleasing your peers and pleasing your audience because they're very different. And it sounds like you guys have learned that along the way. You know that uh, the composers out there that are asking for things are the people that 
are, you know, important and your buddy down the street that wishes it did this is like, all right, that's cool, man. Well, all these other people want that. So we're going to do this. You can have a version like that. No, yeah. When you're making products, you have to make sure you're giving something to the customers. That they, but you can't just like, just listen to every little thing. Sometimes customers don't tell you what they want. Um, and you just create something new, which is, I can't tell you, but we have some cool stuff coming up uh, uh, in the next year or so. Um, That's awesome. You know, you got to sort of um, anticipate the market, you know, go beyond what people are, are, are wanting, kind of see what is it, what does the future look like for music production and composers and all this uh, and what, how will people be writing, you know, in four to five years? What's right now, the average composer or everyone, including myself, we have like sort of the three monitor set up, you know, we've got the keyboard, we've got the MIDI controller, but what will that look like? Will it still be the same thing in five years? Yeah. Will we be more mobile? Will we be on our computers, uh, laptops? Will we be on iPads? So anyway, that's something you got to think about too. True. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing how how much the iPad has made its way into all different forms of of music production. Now you, you can have your controllers on there with your MIDI CCs, and so many people are making like little sampler apps or like soft synths. Technology is crazy; it just is always pushing everybody. You definitely can't uh, can't get stuck in your old way. Totally, yeah, and it's it's really expanding to larger markets too, um, beyond just professionals. You know. Um, I always, I just think about my kids and they're totally into music and wanting to write and, uh, and there's some good stuff. I mean, GarageBand is awesome in my opinion. Gra- GarageBand on the iPad is the coolest thing. Um, but they're always like looking for things to, to use that are simple. And so. Yeah. It, and it's, it's also funny. You have to think, I, you and I are fairly similar ages. I think the kids growing up now have always had this technology in their hands. They've had GarageBand on their phone since they were like five. Uh And the way that they interact and the choices they make creatively are things that like, at least from an engineering side, I would never think about doing, but it's because they they have no, you know, conceptions of what to do or what not to do. It's cool, but yeah, it's got to be really challenging to try to anticipate what kind of product like the next generation of composer or the next generation of producer is going to be interested in. So, I mean, I'm sure that's, that's probably challenging. You guys probably sit around a table, talk about that a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But you know, you gotta like keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground, right? You gotta like, all right. And and make things that people need today. And, uh, while always producing something that's, you know, thinking five, 10 years down the road. Yes, exactly. You gotta, you gotta have like a 10 year plan. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So you said, I forgot, um, how many employees do you have? Uh, Twelve. Wow, that's that's great. How long have you had 12 people? Did it start? It obviously started with you and your co-founder. You guys probably did everything in the beginning. When did you yeah, start it was to bring just, people uh, it was in? Yeah, just the two of us, and and we did the first few libraries ourselves. And you know, you start bringing in contractors to help with things like 
engineering, sample editing, because it's very time consuming, doing some scripting, contact scripting. I don't know if people are familiar with Native Instruments Contact. There's a whole scripting language that uh, that, that people know how to do. Uh, I know nothing about it, but I, I know there's some genius people out there who do a great job. Yeah. So there's, you know, we're doing a lot of contractors and then we hired our first employee uh, around 2000 and oh, I don't can't remember, 2011 maybe. And uh, just started growing the team there. But it's been up and down. We, we were up to like, we were like 10 or 12 people at one point and then we dropped down to three, you know, and we were up and we were up and down. And there's a lot of like, man, there was a lot of learning. What does it look like to run a company correctly? And yeah. uh, I certainly made some mistakes uh, early on, and uh, you know, the, you just you just assume that people will just kind of join a company and they just do the thing. Um, but there's challenges involved with all of that, and uh, so hopefully this is round two with uh, sort of the the next stage of our company. And uh, it's like we we start January first is when we hired all these people. That was only a couple weeks ago, and so right. it's a whole. It's almost like we have a whole new company now. And, oh wow! Uh, okay, it's really, really exciting. We're starting from scratch in a way, and uh, yeah, very cool. Well, you know, along those lines, I know at some point in your life you probably decided to dedicate the majority of your time to Cine samples. As somebody that was a, you know, moved to California with the dreams of like film composition and and stuff like that, was when you decided to focus on running this business as opposed to focusing on composition, was that a tough battle or was it really obvious to you at the time that this is what needs to happen? Okay, so Cine Samples has always been something that was either running in the background or it would become in the forefront where I do it 100% or and then I'd kind of diverge and do a composition thing. And then I'd realize, wow, I'm being a horrible father. I'm going to try to go <laughs> and be a better dad. And they're like, wait, now I'm being a horrible business owner. Let me try... You know, there are these three big things. Um, I was doing a lot of composition. I've done stuff for the, you know, the Disney parks. I did the video game industry and, you know, helping my friends on big movies and stuff. But uh, that's an incredibly time-consuming thing to dive into. And so I kind of made the choice within the last couple of years to really focus on, number one, family, and number two, Cinesamples. And I will take the occasional composition gig if it comes along, uh, especially the Disney stuff, because it's just, I love those guys. It's super fun. But um, yeah, it's kind of, that's my focus right now. And it's been great. Uh, I really, you know, it's kind of like, I really enjoy it. it it's combining everything that I went to school for, which was uh, computer science uh, and music. And that's kind of what Cine Samples is. We're combining technology and music. And uh, it's just fun to create tools and see what people can write with the things that we make, you know? Yeah. Everything in music is, you know, it's all tied together a little bit. Everything you do over here, you learn you learn something over here, you apply it over here. So, I mean, I, I'm always a big fan of, you know, understanding a lot about your industry and, you know, zooming in on the one or two things that you think uh, you can excel at and bring the most to. But it's definitely, it's a tough battle to find. It's, it's hard when like balance. early on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not old and I'm not young. I'm like, I'm 40. So I don't know what that is. That's like no man's <laughs> land. <laughs> you know, uh, but I think when you are younger, there's just, you kind of have, 
you fall into this trap of just saying yes to everything because it's just like, oh, I can't believe someone's hiring me to do this thing I love, you know? So I know. you kind of just start saying yes all the time and then you other things start to fall off your radar, like possibly more important things. And so it's like, you got to be careful of that. And when you're in early on, what I'm saying is like early on, you don't have the ability to just say no to things. It's hard. You kind of are just getting your grounding. And um, yes, you know, I think by the time you're maybe in your 30s or, or whatever, you start to realize, okay, this is the track that looks best for, for, for me. Well, part of that, you know, gr- taking every gig you can is, I mean, obviously music is, is a challenging industry. You got to pay your bills, but it's also, it's discovering all the options out there. You know, it's yeah. music for video games. It's recording this, it's engineering, whatever it is. You have to see the whole world. And then I think is, like you said, in your 30s, your priorities kind of change a little bit. And that's when it's time to start maybe saying no every once in a while when you think it's a bad fit. Yeah, and it's, look, saying no is really hard, especially if you've spent oh, the hardest. 12 years or more saying yes all the time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> because you just think, and we've all been there, you always think that you're your next gig is your last gig, you know? Oh yeah. And, yeah. uh, but such a battle for yeah. musicians. Yep. Yeah. I like to try to remember like, uh, you know, whenever I say yes to something, I try to when when I can keep it in the back of my mind. Cause you know, it's tough. Like you said, you get used to taking, taking every gig. Um, when you say yes to something, you think about what you're saying no to, whether that's, you know, uh, the 10 day family vacation versus the, the weekend at the beach. Or whether that's, you know, working on your own solo record, you know, whatever it is, every yes is going to result in a no somewhere else. So you just, eventually you have to reach that point of balance where, you know, what you're losing out on yeah, in order to, to say yes. So I wanted to go backwards a little bit, if you don't mind. I wanted to talk about how your, your mock-up, A, kind of for our listeners, a little bit more about uh, score mock-up. And how much, if any of that, would make it into a TV show or a movie? And then how that kind of, you know, played into samples a little bit. Sure. Yeah, talking about mock-ups, like uh, mock-ups that I did back in the day. Yeah, so um, I don't know how much people know about media composers. This is a whole industry. There's there's about 100,000 of us out there in the world that do this, you know, writing for music and television and our favorite Netflix shows. Um, it's the music that you don't realize is there but it has such impact on how we experience media. And this music is composed in so many different ways, right? Yeah, you know, it, you can have live musicians in there, we can have sample libraries, but most of the time it is sample libraries. And that's kind of, it's become kind of a necessity in the last 10 years to, to get good at writing for these virtual instruments. Because first of all, even if the final product is gonna be live, the people you're working for are going to need to hear what it sounds like before you go to a scoring stage with a 90 piece orchestra or even a five person group. They need to hear something first to get approval because they're the ones paying the bills. Um, and they want to have confidence that it's what they, uh, what they will expect when they show up at the recording studio. So yeah, it's like, it's a skill that uh, every young musician and composer should know how to do to create mock-ups. And I speak mostly, I come from an orchestral standpoint, um, and that's music for media tends to be orchestral in nature or synth in nature. Um, so getting good at that is very important because most of the time it'll end up in the final product. So, But I, I'm always yeah, encouraging folks to like, we do competitions and stuff where 
We'll say, hey, you know, send in your mock-up and, you know, you can uh, win a chance to have your music uh, recorded with a live group and stuff like that. So, Oh, that's awesome. That's always something we're trying to encourage um, because, you know, look, there's so many, everyone has all the same sample libraries, right? There's only a handful of companies <laughs> that are doing this. And if you're just using those tools, you're going to sound like everyone else. So the right. best way to stand out is to add a few live human beings on top to help differentiate yourself a little bit. Yeah. The amount of, I don't think people know how deep, you know, the virtual instruments, especially like the orchestral stuff that's emulating something that is real, how deep the programming aspect of that can go, you know, because directors are used to hearing things that basically sound finished. So yeah. you have to go through and do all of the velocity programming and all of the the uh, the various MIDI CC stuff that is kind of brings sample libraries to life. You know, a lot of them sound a lot of them sound amazing as they are, you know, to the to an average player, but the stuff that film composers and their assistants do, I mean, to me is mind-blowing how deep they go to get the articulations and just the realism. I can't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I no, I, I just, I listen, like, when I look at some of the, you know, sort of the, the younger folks coming up, uh, some of their stuff is just incredible. It's because they're, again, they grew up with these tools. You and I didn't. <laughs> so we had to learn. <laughs> some of this, some of these mock-ups are just mind-blowing. And I'm like, wait a minute, is that even, is that live or not? I can't tell. And I, I should be able to tell. Speaking of being able to tell, can you, uh, if the music is loud enough in something, can you tell if it's a Cine Samples instrument or if it's a competitor instrument? I can tell. I can tell if it's Cine Samples. Yeah. Actually, I remember the first time I heard Cine Samples in a, in a thing, it was, uh, you remember an Avatar, James Cameron movie, Avatar, oh, yeah. came out in theater and like the first hit when you see the logo, it's just one of our libraries called Drums of War. And it's a very recognizable <laughs> hit. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's our library. That's so good. Yeah, it's it like the cool. the uh, the guys that do sound effects and complain about like the same door being on every door. <laughs> yeah, you know it's a, yeah the the curse of being that far behind the glass. You something else that you're doing that I think is really cool, or that you've done you've done a fair bit of is the video game music. I can imagine, or not. I can imagine. I know basically how film scoring works, and you're like hitting your moments and stuff like that. When you go into the video game realm you're not really composing to picture as much, right? Because you're, you're making music that's going to go with, with an ever-changing landscape. So how, like, how is that different? How, how does that work? I'm just curious. This is more for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's actually pretty similar. Um, yeah, well, with film, you're kind of locked to picture and you have to score very specific things. And generally speaking, with games, you're given sometimes gameplay footage or you'll just go in and play the game and just you're just going to write a piece of music that's like two minutes or three minutes. And, you know, you do have to consider certain technical implementation things like, you know, we want a low intensity version. We want the medium intensity, we want the high intensity, you know, depending on what's happening in the action. But then there are, uh, there can be cinematics and cutscenes, And these things are like, you know, you're scoring a film and you're... That's true. So there's been a lot of that. When I worked on StarCraft II, there was a lot of those things. League of Legends has a lot of these sort of cinematics that they put out to the public. To It's more like a commercial, but they just put these, like, these short films out to get people to play the game. 
And so those are fun to score. And that's where oh, they nice. give you the whole thing. And it's just like, hey, write music that works for this. Okay, that's cool. Well, the like the bed music stuff is, it's got to be, I guess, for something like uh, like StarCraft, there's got to be a pretty loopable aspect to it, right? Yeah. To a certain um, extent? It has to, yeah, it depends. It's always like whatever they want. Um, usually it's just a piece of music that has to loop continuously. But it's cool because you're just, you're free to write whatever you want. And uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is. But uh, I kind of, nice. at the same time, I also like the limitation of having, you know, uh, scoring a very specific scene where you have to like figure out what's happening, you know, and how do you convey that emotionally with music? Are the, um, the last nerd question here, as listeners are just dropping off left and right, we're talking about video games. Are the deliverables <laughs> different? Because I'm, I'm assuming like audio stems and mixes get loaded in to software and then things are triggered based on what is happening on screen. So is there like, a, do you have to make a lot of specific moments and stings that work with various looping pieces yeah so you'll you know, usually on a game you'll you'll work directly with the the audio director whoever's in charge of that sort of thing and so you know they're working in something like wise which is this engine for audio implementation in games and they'll set up all these triggers and say hey we need a piece of music that does this or we need a small little 15 second thing that does this to because you just opened a door or whatever and usually at the end of a game, you're like scrambling to get all those extra pieces written. Okay. Yeah, no, but that's okay. usually like you're, if you're working with a good audio director, they just tell you what they need and you just do it. Okay. I know there's some uh, amazing composers that know how to implement this stuff in WIs. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Let's, well, somebody else is getting paid to do that. You're getting paid to write music. Somebody else can, can put it in there. Yeah. That's fine. Okay, so... Uh, one of the uh, the big the big things I love to talk about on this show is um, finding what your your goals are and, and breaking those down to to steps. And as somebody that's running a company, and not just running a company, doing sample libraries, which I know are extremely deep projects, how do you do? You have any tips or anything that you learned to manage time to make sure that you're hitting milestones on? projects because when it's your company you're holding yourself accountable for everything how do you make sure that you're hitting what you need to hit as a you know as mike patty it's like practically speaking when you're running a company yeah pr practically or yeah theoretically whatever how, however sure. you want to i would say well okay big picture wise I'm, I'm always a fan of like you know figuring out what it is that you want to accomplish like you know what are your goals what do you want to try to do write that down have it somewhere you could remind yourself, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I'm trying to hit that goal by this date. Because sometimes we'll, we'll like think about, oh yeah, it'd be awesome if I could accomplish this thing. Um, and then you kind of just forget about it. It's important to continually remind yourself, hey, I'm heading in this direction. So I try to do that every year. Like, all right, by December, you know, um, wouldn't be awesome if I could, if we could be here and, you know, the company is at this revenue you know, we did this trip with the family, you know, stuff like that. And just, it's sort of like an interesting exercise when you sit down to figure out what, you know, what would you just love to do? And, and what would your life look like if you could just, you know, snap your fingers and write that down? And that's just been really helpful to me. Not in a, like a, you know, woo-woo sort of way. It's just like, I think <laughs> if you were to write this stuff down and you keep remembering and thinking about it, then you'll you're sort of subconsciously will always kind of point yourself in that direction to get there. 
True. You know, I agree. Yeah. There's something about uh, always making sure you know where you're going is kind of the only way to make sure you're going there. Because, the you know, like you make progress in a career. Most people make progress in a career like, you know, incrementally in small steps. I mean, sure, some people turn into a one-hit wonder or whatever it is. But generally, like, things are happening slow and it's hard to sometimes feel like you're going where you want to go unless you're reminding yourself and looking at your path. And you're like, you know what? I am. I'm on my way. I'm doing it. You know, so I think that yeah, stuff exactly. is huge. Right. Yeah. That's a good, you bring up the one hit wonder thing. Like you, we can't try to think that that's going to happen one day. You know, we can get stuck in a rut like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And then eventually one day someone's going to call me or I'm going to get that email. Uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's a very low chance of that happening. Anybody that says that happens is leaving part of the story out too. Let's be honest. Yeah, most people that have reached that level of success or something, uh, some big break happened, they'll all tell you that like uh, they were just ready for the opportunity. Yes. Yeah, now, I'm, I, yeah, I, I haven't had my, you know, I'm not a famous composer or anything. I never had my big, you know, Oscar winning score or anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, I consider myself a success. Well, I think, uh, well, that's, you know, something else that I think is important that a lot of musicians um, or a lot of people are on, unable or unwilling to do and that's to define what success is like to you as opposed to defining what success is in comparison to those around you especially in the social media internet world like everybody's always look at that guy he's so successful i wish i was that guy like 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 comment you know um so i think that's important you know was is there a time in your life when you decided that you would define success or have you always been like that? Have you always defined success for yourself? Yeah. Well, I guess the question is what is success? Um, (laughs) I think everyone would define it differently. Uh, For me, it it has to do with having the freedom to, um, you know, be there for my family, to be a good father and to be involved in this, this industry that I fell in love with when I saw Jurassic park in 1992, being able to do all of those things. Um, is uh was very satisfying to me and i consider that a success when you have the freedom to do what you want i think that's you know when you're not like you know in bondage to like having to do something you know you're like a slave to having to do xyz yes yeah yeah freedom i think is a big one yeah no i would say freedom i'm I'm kind of figuring this this is good for me it's like therapy i'm trying to figure out what it is (laughs) uh yeah i think it's like uh freedom is huge um and I can't say that I'm fully there yet, but that's definitely on the, on the horizon, something that I would love to see from my family, you know, being able to just travel, being able to just do whatever it is that we want to do um, without being beholden to anything else. Yeah. So yeah, that's for that's, me. That's my definition of it. So mine, mine is, is similar. The, uh, the idea of, of freedom, I think, um, freedom of choice for for you and your, in your day-to-day life, I think is something that's important for people. And, um, you know, I've been a slave to many jobs and worked many 16 hour days and I work a lot less now and I'm a lot happier <laughs> and I consider myself yeah, but now I, just I think as successful probably, as I was. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. But, but like when you're younger, you, you don't, you like feel like you have to go through that a little bit. You, you have, have to, to go yeah. through that refiner's fire, right? You gotta, cause you gotta learn your skill. You gotta learn your craft. Yeah. And you yes. also got to develop that network of people that know you. Those years of work are, are the things that people 
remember, you know, this person is dependable. This person is a hard worker. I know this person's going to, they're going to come through for me. And uh, so it, it is, it's a tricky balance for sure to, to try to have both of those things, to be that, that guy that always pulls through the last minute yep. deadline, but then also to have the freedom to, you know, do the family yeah. vacations and, and whatever. And, and the key, like along those lines, talking about freedom is like, you know, there's the being the gig person where you just are chasing after the gig and you get paid for the gig and then you're got to search for the next gig and then just get paid for that gig, then gig to gig to gig. Rather than looking, looking at your industry or the world that you're in and saying, how can I create some kind of passive, you know, passive income in what I'm doing? Over time, if you're a composer, it's, you know, considering getting your music into libraries or making sure that your name is on the cue sheet for ASCAP or BMI, you know, stuff like this is really important as you build that up through your twenties and thirties. That way you do have, you just, you do have that freedom to be like, you know what? I don't want that gig. I want the, you know, I can pick and choose now. Yeah. So yeah, that's really where that freedom comes in. Uh, There's some financial freedom. I feel like I could just keep talking about this, like also getting out of debt, <laughs> like getting out of debt is a huge thing. Uh, that was a huge thing for me and my wife. Uh, back in 2009, we just made a decision. Um, we're going to cut up our credit cards and pay off our student loans. And it took us about two years of like really hard work. Um, Lynn uh, got some like textbooks from a friend at a college and we just, she just gave it to us and we just sold those on Amazon made some extra cash, paid off one of our credit cards. You know, um, I was doing all sorts of extra jobs just to make some extra income. And um, that was a key turning point. I remember the day we said we paid our final bill. I think it was for the car. And it was like, wow, we have no debt. This is the weirdest thing. And then (laughs) what you could do is you have all this extra income that you can now put into savings and you can start thinking about putting it into retirement. I, I, I sound like an old man, but like, our parents and our grandparents were right. Okay. Uh, it's like, we Listen have to, to do them. these slow, boring things. That's how you succeed. That's how you reach the places you want to get. Well, it's even, I think more important for anybody in the gig economy, because, yeah. you know, there's a large, there's a large chunk of people that have a job and they have retirement built into their job, but people that, that chase their, and it's usually people that are chasing their passions and are in the arts are these the people that are in this gig economy. And it's up to you to do all of that. Like you said, there are so many people that are unable or unwilling to save earlier in their life. And for the gig worker, you're the only one that can do that for you. No, you're not going to have a checkbox on your in HR that says, yes, please sign me up for the 401k and match. Right. Like that doesn't happen for... Uh, a lot of musicians. So it's it's super important. And it can be, like you said, it can be royalties. It can be like, maybe you're doing loops for Splice. Maybe you're writing songs. Maybe you're uh, like, whatever it is, There there is passive streams of income for musicians. And I think it's important that people uh, explore the ones that are applicable to their, you know, part of the business, whatever that might yep. be. Because yeah, yeah, everybody's, Eventually, you're going to want to retire. And gig economies, I mean, how many people do you know in the music business that you know that they they only get paid when they're in the room? And it's like, well, then how do you ever stop being in the room? You know, when when does it stop for you? 
You'll never mm-hmm. retire if you have to be in the room to make the money. Yep. Which is a sad reality that I think, you know, I think pushes a lot of people out of music, potentially. I, eventually, they're like, this is not sustainable. But it can be sustainable. You can find a way to make it work, I think. And that's my ramblings on it. But anyway, I, I think it's important. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, people should be trying their best to put themselves in a position where they are able to save. Totally. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, looking, looking for those opportunities, like looking for the things that sound really boring, to be honest, right? <laughs> like cutting samples is not something I think anyone grows up wanting to do. Uh, but there's an opportunity there and that no one's doing. Everyone's, you know, go the other direction of everyone else, you know, yes. <laughs> see what everyone's doing and go the other way Yeah, and uh, see where the opportunities are. Especially now, I think it's, there's so many opportunities for oh yeah things so in the music industry if you really like just just look at what's possible yeah yeah there's uh there's so much access to music there's so much access to technology you know i mean you could make a plug in you could yeah wh- whatever it is there's a million things that you could do that you'll find uh interesting i think that's the key is to find something that is in line with your passions and is interesting cine samples yeah well, is fascinating and interesting to you yeah it has to be because you won't do it. You know, you'll do it for a little while and then you stop. It has to be sustainable, but yeah, and somewhat in your realm of expertise. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I just happen to find. Yeah, we've found mine, which is cutting samples and trying to recreate that orchestral sound. Of by the way, the the all of our most of our instruments are recorded in the same room with a lot of the same musicians as the as the people that played on uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> so I was like. We basically recreated that sound and now we sell it. So it's... Uh, <laughs> so it all, it all comes circle. It you know, all comes, all, yeah, I guess so, yeah. 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 But that's... Um, and then, that's, you know, you still get that opportunity. You know, I still, every once in a while, someone will hire me and they'll be like, hey, we got a gig for you and there's going to be an orchestra session. So, you know, yay, I'll do those. <laughs> but, um, do, you, uh, do you get to make music for yourself or are you interested in making music for yourself? Do you write? I would love to. I haven't had the time to do it. No, I have not done. I, it's it's hard for me. I our mutual friend Corey Britz. He's like always writing stuff for fun. Always, and I just don't understand. He's just like a born creative. He just has to keep just churning stuff out out, or else he dies. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I uh, I'm weird. I I feel like I have to be doing it for something. But I've written stuff. I should probably get back into it. Yeah, it's you know it's how I I don't play guitar. I was going to say I don't play guitar as much as I used to, but what I what I should say to make myself not a liar is I don't play guitar. But I definitely I try to I try to make more music. I think for me it's easier to sit down at like Ableton and do something with a keyboard because everything's like set up. You know, there's a convenience factor. Yep. I'd probably play more guitar if my studio was more dialed in to just pick it up and plug it in. But yeah, once you're surrounded by your career and your industry, sometimes you know that thing that got you in fades out for people which I think is unfortunate. I definitely, every day, think I should make more music, but it's tough. It's a lot. It's well, that's, only a, so that's much a thing time. that happens. Um, I mean, I'm sure everyone who's, who's been in the music industry has experienced that, where you, maybe you've, you've, you got the gig that you always wanted, or you did the thing that you thought would be so awesome, and then you did it, and it was like, okay, now what? Oh, just do it again? All right. You know, and you kind of <laughs> get a little... I mean, that happened with me. I... I I've had opportunities to work with orchestras in, you know, the, th- the three scoring stages in LA, uh, you know, worked in uh, Skywalker Ranch. I've had 
music performed by the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road for Disney and stuff. And, uh, you know, you do all these things. You're like, okay, cool. Now what? You know, now that I did it, I guess just do it again, right? Yeah. And uh, I realized, well, those things ultimately, it's not, there's no like ultimate fulfillment, right? And everyone always <laughs> talks about like, yeah, you're not going to just get the gig and all of a sudden, yay, I've reached it and now I can, you know, die happy. <laughs> For me, I find fulfillment just hanging with my kids. It's the boring things <laughs> that I find fulfillment with, you know, like spending those those moments with with them and or just hanging with my wife and going on date nights or whatever. You know, everyone should see uh, this new Pixar movie that just came out, Soul. I, w I watched it uh, with my kids. It, it touches on this exact thing. Okay. It's really, really cute. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those Pixar movies you cry at the end, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's like it, it just nails it nails this because the lead character is a he's a musician and he's chasing after the gig and he gets the gig and it's like, oh, all right, that's it. But uh, you now he realizes the important things are the small things in life. It is that's a horrible that... sort of uh, reduction of the the movie, but you have to see it. Um, <laughs> It is true. It you definitely most people spend a lot of their life chasing something, and then when they get there, realize that there's probably a lot of things that they passed on the way that should have been more entertaining or more exciting, but they were too blinded. So people should, you know, take a second to look around. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It sounds like, and it sounds like that's like a Hallmark card or something like. Uh, <laughs> but it's true, and I, I think you can do both. Right, you can still take those small moments and make them important and also do the things you love but don't expect those things to be fulfilling like don't obsess over this sort of idol of the future and just be chasing it and and just you know nearly killing yourself to try to get there because when you get there you'll realize that idol is just kind of a false idol there's nothing there there's nothing to grab onto so well uh i don't know if you have listened to the show but i usually end with the same question um Mm -hmm. I like to put people on the spot a little bit. And I know that I know that you have a company with unreleased products. So you answer this question in, in however you can answer it. But what is your current big goal for yourself or for your company? And what is the next smallest thing you're going to do to go towards it? Okay, yeah. So for Zeta Samples, we're kind of rebranding. We're building a new site. We're, uh, we're going to be releasing a line of new products. Um, we are going to kind of stick with the orchestral stuff that we've been doing. Uh, I don't want to say too much about what it is, um, but it's going to be pretty cool. We have an awesome new team now, which is which is great because we're able to crank out a lot more stuff. In the past, we only did about one or two products per year. So you're going to see a real flood of products coming from Cine Samples. And then we are working on some new technology, um, a software platform, I will say, uh, that will make composers' lives a lot easier, especially those that write music uh, for media. And there just needs to be an easier way to get these sounds. And that's always been my problem uh, as a composer, is I need a specific sound and I need to be able to get it quickly. That's about all I'll say about that. Uh, but it's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, Cool. That's amazing. Is there? Um, do you want to let let anybody know where they can find Cinesample's website or social media, any, anything you want people to go check out? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, cinesamples.com and uh, you can go to my website, mikepatty.com. There you go. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Well, oh, and I wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite stage, scoring stage? 
Oh, well, the MGM stage, of course. That's the, that's the one for you. Okay. That's it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Mike, this has been a, a, a lot of fun, man. I really enjoyed hanging and I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing what you guys put out this year. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. You got me excited. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that's it for episode 32. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, please drop us a review or share the show with a friend if you've been enjoying it. And maybe consider signing up for the mailing list to be sure you get all the latest info first. And lastly, join us over at completeproducer.net and get in the conversation over there. See you next week.